You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are continuing our series this morning on praying with Paul, how to pray for one another. Remember, the goal of this series is to look at how Paul prayed for others and with God's help to imitate what Paul did. Paul called us to imitate him as he imitated Christ. So we want to do that. We want to do that specifically in the area of prayer. Well, last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we are today, in verses 3 and 4, we noted how Paul was especially aware of his obligation to be grateful for God's work in the lives of other people. Right? So we, we just saw that Paul had this acute awareness that God was working in the lives of the people around him. And specifically, we saw the context of the church in Thessalonica, where not only was Paul aware of grace and God's work in them, but Paul just seemed to be, in large part, just in wonder that God had actually done the work he did in the Thessalonians, and that he was continuing that work. And we saw in verses 3 and 4, Paul thanked God, expressing his obligation to give God thanks because the faith of the Thessalonians was growing abundantly. Their love for one another was increasing. And then they continued to bear under the trials that God had called them to bear. And so Paul, when he thought of this, every time he considered this, he was filled with gratitude. Gratitude for God for his work. So Paul's kind of M.O. was to go to the source Paul's MO was to go to the source. So when he saw someone doing something like loving another person or being kind or being patient, he didn't think, wow, great work for that person. His his modus operandi was to go to the source. Thank God that he's bearing fruit in this person's life, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So we just want to imitate that. And that was what we saw last week. We want to be on the lookout for evidences of God's grace in the lives of other people. And we also, when we see God's grace at work, we not only want to thank God for it, but remember Paul's model is actually to go to that brother or sister and say, I thank God for what he's doing in your life. God is helping you to be faithful. And we, I thank God for the work that he's doing. And that's an encouragement. And so we want to continue to facilitate, to cultivate rather, that skill or gift. When we see people being faithful, we want to be quick to thank God for it. And think about this week. And with that being fresh on my mind, there are just instances where you see God at work in people's lives, and, it, and it, it, it evokes, should evoke gratitude for God's grace. Well, this morning, we're in the same chapter, chapter 1, but we're going to jump down to verses 11 and 12. And in these verses, Paul gave a very brief prayer report for how, or to, a brief prayer report to the Thessalonians recording how it was that he prayed for them. 
Right, so how, how he prayed for them. This is an insight into Paul's prayer life for the Thessalonians. And while it's a prayer report, it actually can function as a guide for us or a model for us on how to pray for one another. And that's how I want to look at it this morning. Looking at Paul's model of praying for others from 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. So Paul's model of praying for others from 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. Let's read our text. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning, grateful for another day of life, life that we don't deserve to have, but in your kindness, you continue to give us day after day of enjoying your grace and kindness. And Lord, one of these graces, especially one of these graces to us, is the grace to be able to gather together with other believers and to sit underneath your word. So this morning, Father, as we look at this passage, we pray together that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things here, that your spirit would be at work to illuminate our hearts to see how we can pray deliberately for one another. Help us, Father, for your name's sake. Amen. So, what was Paul's model for praying for other people? How did he pray for others? Well, this two-verse prayer report gives us such a model. And I hope you'll be able to see that as we work through it. But to begin with, we can divide these two verses in half. Verse 11 reports the content of Paul's prayer, while verse 12 uh, clearly states the goal or the purpose of Paul's prayer. The content is verse 11, and the purpose or the goal of Paul's prayer, prayers for the Thessalonians, is found in verse 12. And so what I want to do is just take this verse by verse, uh, phrase by phrase rather, and look at what we can learn from Paul about praying for one another. So first, verse 11, the content of Paul's prayer for others. Paul prayed three specific things for the Thessalonians. We see this in verse 11. We'll see if you can catch the three things. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And there are three things there. Three things that Paul emphasized in his praying for others. And those three things can give direction and depth to our praying for others. And and so let's, let's learn from Paul. First, he prayed that God would make the Thessalonians worthy of their calling. Second, he prayed that God would fulfill their resolves for good. And third, God fulfill their works of faith in power. 
Now, we could summarize these three things under one, uh, I guess, theme, and I've given it to you there in the notes. The first part, the content of Paul's prayer, is actually Paul praying for the advancement of God's work in the lives of others. The advancement of God's work in the lives of others. Now, Paul gives three specific ways that he prays for God's activity or God's work to be advanced in the lives of the Thessalonians. Three things. First, God, make them worthy of your calling. We see that in verse 11 very clearly. To this end, we always pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Worthy of his calling. There is an important emphasis here on God's activity. This is God's work. And we need to realize this at the outset that Paul is praying to God, asking God that he would continue a work that he was actually already doing in the Thessalonians. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 4 1, Paul mentions uh, how he prays for the Thessalonians. And he says that they're abounding in good works, and he prays specifically that they would do so more and more. So it's not that the Thessalonians, like other church, some of the other churches, were having some sort of difficulty in exercising faithfulness. No, the church in Thessalonica was actually being very faithful in very difficult circumstances. And Paul's concern for them was not that they would start doing something that they weren't otherwise doing, but actually that they would continue to do what they were doing already, and that they would do so more and more. And so now we come to Paul's prayer for them. He's actually praying, God, advance your work. It's not God, start a work in them, but advance it. Continue this work and to carry it out in them. So Paul is praying specifically for God to act. And God is the subject of this verb. He is the one who will do the action. Now what is the action? Look at verse 11. That our God may make you worthy of His calling. That God would make you worthy of His calling. Now there's a bit... A variation here between the ESV and the NASB. It's a little survey. How many NASB people do we have in here? Got them. Okay. And ESV? What other translation? Who, who's got another translation? Okay. NIV? Okay. Yeah, so it, it's funny that we tend to divide over these two translations. Right? NASB and ESV. And they're, they're both excellent translations. And they tend to do things um, in complementary fashion. And I want to be an advocate for both. Let's use both of them. Sometimes the NASB is really good and helpful, and sometimes the ESV is a little more helpful. Well, in this text, uh, the reason I asked you that is because you're going to see a pretty clear divide between the NASB and the ESV. The ESV reads that our God may make you worthy of His calling. See that? That God may make you worthy of His calling. Or the NASB reads that our God will count you worthy of your calling. 
Well, whose calling is it? Is it God's calling or is it our calling? And is God going to count us worthy or is he going to make us worthy? That's a legitimate question as we're looking at these two translations. Well, literally, you could translate this phrase or clause, that God may count you worthy of the calling. The calling. So here, the NASB wins a point for literalness. That God may count you worthy of the calling. But the NASB is only slightly more literal. And the ESV actually does a bit of interpretation that is helpful. And that's what I want us to see. This interpretation that the ESV gives us is helpful because it captures what Paul is praying. Paul is praying that God would actually work to make these folks worthy of their calling. There are two things here that we need to consider. What is this calling? Is it God's calling or is it our calling? I'm going to say it's both. It's the calling. But what is it the calling to? What's he talking about there? And then second, how does God make us worthy of that calling? What is the calling and how does God make us worthy of it? Well, first, what does the word calling here mean? Well, in the New Testament, we see two types of calling. There's what we call the general call. It's an invitation to all sinners. It's a Matthew 22 type of call. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. This is a a wide call. But few are actually chosen. And then, so that's the general call. And then we have a specific call that we call the effectual calling of God. The effectual call of God. That is the call to salvation by God. And this call is always effective. Right? God always affects His intended results when He calls sinners. Now, this is the divine call. So you have the general call and an effectual call. Well, in Paul's writing, when he uses the word calling, he is always talking about the divine effectual call of God. I think Romans 8. Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And then He jumps down. um, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. This is the effectual call of God. So, Make them worthy here of the calling. The calling here is the call to salvation. Alright, secondly, how does one become worthy of that? What do you mean, Paul? Make worthy of this call. Well, we know that Paul does not mean that somehow you and I live lives that are, are worthy enough for God to look out at us and deem us Uh, to have arrived and now come into the kingdom of God, right? None of us deserve God's call, the call to salvation. None of us can earn that call. So we know that Paul's not talking about earning, somehow winning the favor of God. This would contradict Paul elsewhere. 
So what is he talking about? How does one become worthy of the kingdom or the call? If you flip back to 1 Thessalonians 2, I think we have our answer. What is he talking about to be made worthy of this salvific call? 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. For you know how, Paul's describing his ministry with the Thessalonians, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. You see that there? We exhorted you to walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. It's the same language in Ephesians 4, 1-3 where Paul writes, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of that calling? Ephesians 4, 2, and 3. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, So Paul's exhortation here, back in 2 Thessalonians, is that these brothers would live their lives in a manner that reflected their high calling now to be kingdom citizens. They were called to a high calling. And Paul's desire for them was that they would now walk in a way that reflected this calling. They had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of God. And now they were called by Paul, or Paul had called them in 1 Thessalonians at least, to walk worthy of that kingdom. So I think when Paul prays, God make them worthy, he's praying, God, cause them to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which they've been called. It's the same idea with adoption. Right? We, we were at one point not God's children. And our lives reflected that we were not God's children. But God in His kindness brought us into His family through adoption. And now we're His children. And God calls us to actually live like His children. Right? So you're God's child. Now live like God's child. We don't say... Live, like, God, live like, like a child of God, and so become a child of God. We don't say, live like a child of God, and so become a child of God. We say, brother, you have become a child of God by the unilateral work of God. Now, God calls you to live like His child. That's sanctification. So I grew up in the country, south of here, in a little town called Blooming Grove. People like 20 minutes away from Blooming Grove haven't even heard of it. So it's a really small town, but I grew up on an old dairy farm. So an old dairy farm, but it was retired, so there were no, you know, that kind of activity wasn't happening. We just had the old barn, and we had the old farmhouse, 
And it was in that farmhouse that we actually grew up. I'll say grew up from like as far back as I can remember to 13. So it was an old farmhouse and it was really drafty. And so winters would be really cold, winters in Texas. And we were on the plane, and so it was just, wind would just rip right through. And I remember the house whistling um, as a kid. Well, it was very cold, and we only had one source of heat. And it was a wood-burning stove in our living room. So in our bedroom, it would get really cold. And so my parents strategically had my brother and I share a room, and we shared a bed. And, you know, looking back on it, I think they probably did that for practical purposes, you know, twofold, like, so we don't have to have another bed, but also so they don't freeze to death at night. Um, But I remember my dad coming into the bedroom, and we would be underneath, like, this huge stack of blankets, and he would tuck us in. And I remember him uh, talking really to my older brother, who's four years older than me, and I remember listening, and my dad would say things like, Never forget that you are Barlow's. That's our last name, for the record. Never forget that you're a Barlow. And that everything you do reflects back on your family. Never forget that. And, I mean, as a kid, I thought, okay, Dad, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, But as I grew older, I I began to appreciate my dad's sentiment. And I think that that's the idea here, is that you, you are brought into the kingdom of God. And now, our earnest desire is that we would actually live like kingdom citizens. It's the same idea in 1 Peter 1, 14-16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy. He is holy, so you be holy. And I think that's Paul's exhortation here, and that's Paul's prayer. Paul's praying that these believers would actually live worthy of the high calling that they had been called to, that they would actually live up to that calling, that their lives would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. So when we think about how to pray for others, that is a very Deep, directed prayer. God, help them, make them to walk, to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of your kingdom. Worthy of the high calling that they've been called to. Now just imagine with me, someone, you know, you're having a rough week, and someone comes up to you and says, brother, this is my prayer for you this week. That God would empower you by His grace to live worthy of the kingdom that you've been called to. That's, a, that's encouraging, helpful, clear, directed. So that's the first aspect. Second, Paul prayed that God would fulfill their desires or resolves for good. So look at verse 11. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling... And may fulfill every resolve for good. Every resolve for good. Once again, there's a bit of a difference between the NASB and the ESV. The NASB reads, fulfill every desire for goodness. ESV says, fulfill every resolve for good. A desire and a resolve. 
The specific word for desire here has the idea of desire directed towards something that causes satisfaction or favor. Listen, I'm going to read that again. The idea of desire here carries this nuance of direction towards something that causes satisfaction or favor. Desire directed towards something that causes satisfaction. So when Paul's praying, he's talking about the Thessalonians, their internal desires. What are the things that they wanted? What were they looking for? The desire, as desires, the Thessalonians had radically been transformed. Their desires had been radically transformed. Whereas before, the desires of an unbelieving Gentile or of a lost Jewish person in the first century, their desires were essentially bent on themselves. But something remarkable had happened to the Thessalonians. They were born again. And with the new birth comes new desires. And they had new desires. And the word resolve here actually captures it it really well. Our English word resolve is a firm determination. And that's what Paul is conveying. A firm determination. These brothers and sisters had a firm desire and determination for what? Well, the text says it was a resolve for good. Resolve for good. These were internal desires that were now aimed at accomplishing good things. When we are brought into God's kingdom, our desires are radically changed. Just think about that. Think about you as an unbeliever and you as a believer. How did your desires change? Radically. At one point in time, you hated, Romans 1, the things that God loves and wants you to desire. But once you become a child of God, you have new desires. And you think about that. New desires, new desires that are actually pleasing to God. And the way this works is, is really remarkable. As believers, our desires are no longer oriented on ourselves or to please ourselves, but they're now aimed at pleasing God above all. And what happens is, in Christ, we become so satisfied that we are free to pursue the good things which please God, like like love our neighbor as ourselves. Whereas before, we only thought about loving ourselves and little about our neighbor, or maybe we used our neighbor as a platform to love ourselves. Well, in Christ, we are now fully satisfied in Jesus and set free to actually love others without any desire or any bent on loving ourselves. We become so satisfied in Jesus that the good things which please Jesus now please us. And the principle here is that the more satisfied you are in Jesus, 
the more you will be resolved to do good. And, I, and I'm, to be clear, I'm not seeing that in the text right here. This is, just an, this is what we see in the Thessalonians. They became believers. They became Christians. And their, their desires changed. They were being persecuted, but their faith was flourishing. And Paul receives this report that these folks are actually advancing in love, advancing in grace. And not only that, but they are full of resolves, resolutions, firm determinations to do good to other people. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a new heart. A new heart that finds its ultimate satisfaction in God. If a a desire is a, a desire directed towards something that causes satisfaction, well, our desire ultimately is for God. And once we are in Christ and loving Him, we are set free to love other people. There's a story about George Mueller that illustrates this point pretty well. You're familiar with him. He's the 19th century orphanage director, evangelist, uh, prayer warrior. That's what he's normally remembered for. Well, one time there was a rich woman who visited George Mueller to discuss the possibility of giving a large gift to the orphanage. She came in and she made her presentation. And as was his custom... Mueller didn't ask for the money right away. He let her leave, and then he prayed for her. And his prayer for her is remarkable, and I want to read it for you. Uh, it's actually a report on how he prayed for her, which is really like what we're looking at this morning. But here's what he said. After she had left, I asked the Lord that he would be pleased to make this dear sister so happy in himself And enable her so to realize her true riches and inheritance in the Lord Jesus. And the reality of her heavenly calling. That she might be constrained by the love of Christ. Cheerfully to lay down this 500 pounds at his feet. That she might be constrained by the love of Christ. Once you are satisfied in God, you will have new desires. And Mueller knew this, and he prayed, not that the lady would quickly hand over the money, but that she would find her ultimate satisfaction in God. That she would be so happy in God that she would gladly give this money as, as it was nothing compared to the wealth she had in Christ. Essentially, Mueller was praying, Lord, give this woman a good Faithful resolve and complete it. Fulfill that resolve for her. Now, we know, I, th- I think it's, we can argue pretty clearly that the Thessalonians were satisfied in Christ. And that their internal desires were bent on doing good. And Paul's desire for them was that God would bring about or fulfill these good resolves that they had. And what might a good resolve look like? Paul uses the same language of resolve and desire in Romans 10.1. Listen to what he prays. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is the same word here for desire in 2 Thessalonians 1. My heart's desire and prayer 
to God for them as that may be, they may be saved. So what's a good resolve look like? It looks like a resolve, a desire for the salvation of others. Uh, we also know that Paul was resolved. He had an ambition to proclaim the gospel where Christ had not been named. That's a good resolve. A, a resolve then could be a desire, an idea that you have for doing good to others for the glory of God. Right? What are those resolves that you have? And just as a, a clarifying remark, right, believers ought to have these resolves. You ought to have them. So what are they? Have you, have you considered maybe a plan? How to, to carry out a good resolve, a good desire for um, the good of other people and the glory of God? It could be various things. But the point is that you need to have these resolves if you're in Christ. Well, the person in Christ's kingdom will inevitably have new desires. And so Paul knew this and Paul prayed, God, would you fulfill their resolves for good? Not just make them have resolves, but Lord, fulfill them. Bring them to pass. So first, we can pray that God would make others worthy of His calling. And then we also pray that God would fulfill their resolves for good. It's a good way to pray for someone. And then third, we pray that God would fulfill their faith-prompted works. Faith-prompted works. Verse 11, fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. Paul now moves from the realm of internal desire or resolve to the, to the, the realm of actual works. It's one thing to have ideas uh, good intentions, it's another thing for those things to take root and, and um, become a reality. So now Paul is looking at the actual works that these believers are accomplishing. Now every work of faith is an interesting phrase. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, and it, it refers to works which are produced by faith. That's why I think I put it in your outline Faith-prompted works. Faith-prompted works. That's because faith produces works. The nature of living faith is to produce works. That's the point of James 1, or James 2, 17 to 18. Right, so a faith that doesn't produce works is defective or dead. A true faith produces works. Works demonstrate that faith is alive. So works demonstrate that faith is actually living, that it's real, that it's genuine. It's really similar. It's really similar to the uh, Coke bottle Mentos experiment. You drop a, a Mentos in the Coke bottle and see what happens. If you haven't done that, it would be a good afternoon to do that because we're all a little sleepy. Go home, get a Mentos, put it in the Coke bottle, just see what happens. The point is you won't be able to hide that you've dropped a Mentos in the Coke bottle. Neither can you ha- hide faith. Right? True faith 
is alive. It produces works. Now there's another connection here I think that Paul is, is getting at. The connection between faith and works. And we see that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. But for sake of time, we won't go there. Uh, but just not, note that and think about this. What is the source of faith uh, in, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10? Who gives faith and grace? God. God gives faith. Now, verse 10 is a really powerful verse. Does anyone know that verse? Yeah. Created in Christ Jesus for His workmanship, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's a connection there between God giving us faith and God has also at the same time prepared works beforehand that we should walk in. So God's desire then is that you would actually live out good works in your life. There are good works that God has given, uh, desires to be carried out in your neighborhood, in your family, in the world, which He's written for you to do. Ephesians 2.10 And in order to see these things come about, what has God done? He's given you what? Faith. Because faith will stimulate this reality. Faith stimulates works. So, moving along. We're having to skip some things. How do we apply this? Well, really straightforward. We pray that God would bring to fruition all of our faith prompted works. That is that God would cause the works that we do motivated by faith to actually bear fruit. That's the word fulfill. Fulfill just means to bring to completion. Bring to fruition. Cause it to flourish. That would cause that God would cause our works to be fruitful. And there's an important emphasis here that we need to get. God is the one doing the work. I already said that. But notice verse 11. The very end. We pray for you that God would fulfill your resolves for good and every work of faith by His power. By His power. The prayer is that God would fulfill good resolves and works of faith by His power. God's power is the instrumental means by which our resolves for good and works of faith will be fulfilled. Commenting on this verse, D.A. Carson wrote, The truth is that unless God works in us and through us, unless God empowers these good purposes of ours, they will not engender any enduring spiritual fruit. They will not display life-transforming, people-changing power. Unless God empowers our efforts, there will be no eternal significance to our efforts. Unless the Lord, Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, laborers labor in vain. 
Unless God empowers our good resolves and faith-prompted works, they will not accomplish what we desire. So, friends, here's what we can pray for one another. God empower their works of faith and good resolves. Cause them to be fruitful for your namesake. That's a good prayer. Good prayer for one another. Well, we, we recognize that God is at work. God is the one doing the work in the lives of one another. And, and unless He empowers that work, it falls flat. But there's an implication here in this passage that's important for us to just think about while we're considering how we pray for others. And that implication is this. God's sovereign activity in our lives to bring about these works, to make us worthy of His calling, to fulfill our good resolves, and to empower our faith-prompted works, God's sovereign activity is not an excuse to do nothing. Paul is praying that God would make these people worthy of their calling. At the same time, he exhorts them, remember we saw in 1 Thessalonians, to actually exercise themselves to live worthy of that calling. So we have to be careful when we're praying for others and when we're thinking about this, that we don't drift into some sort of, you know, um, God, just make me worthy of your kingdom. My hands are tied. I can do nothing. Right? That's not it. God will... um, Make you worthy of your kingdom, if he's, of his kingdom, if he's called you into his kingdom. He'll make you worthy. But he also calls you to exercise the faith he's gifted you. And we have to. We have to exercise that faith. So how do we pray for others? Well, we pray that God was, would advance his work in their lives. God, advance your work in their lives by making them worthy of their calling, the calling which they've been called. Advance your work in their lives by fulfilling their resolves for good and their faith-prompted works by your power. It's a good way to pray for one another. Just a really a side here. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes when we're, we're praying for ourselves or praying in general, if you hear yourself praying, you think, man, this is really weak. This is, this is really, almost like, surely, Lord, I can do better than this prayer. Like, Lord, bless them today. But praise the Lord. That, that's a, I'm not belittling that prayer. Right? God, um, God delights in our simple prayers. And that's, he, he does. The prayers of the saints are kept and recorded by God. This is a wonderful thing. But this is just me speaking more on a practical level with you. When I reflect sometimes on my own prayers, I think, man, that is really shallow. I think, Lord, I want to pray better. I want to pray more effective. I want to pray in a way that is a little more like the prayers of Daniel or the prayers of David or the prayers of Moses or the prayers of Paul. Sometimes our prayers are shallow and lack direction. Well, friends, this Praying this way will give depth and direction to your prayers for others. Not that you would somehow lean on, oh, I'm the best prayer for other people. Right? That's, 
We don't want to aim at self-righteousness. That's not the goal. But this is just a, just a model that Paul gives us that we can pray for others with depth and direction. So rather than praying, God help them in this or God bless them in this in a general way, we could adopt Paul's model and pray, God, would you advance your work in their lives? Cause them to be worthy of the kingdom. Fulfill their good resolves and give power to their faith-prompted works. You see the difference? I mean, God, God is working. But I think that we, can, we could all do better in, in our prayers. We can all grow in our, our praying for one another. And one of the ways that we can make sure our prayers go deep is that we pray Scripture. That's a, and that's a wonderful model that we see at our church. Um, praying the Scriptures first and then we pray often. That's, that's great. It's encouraging to see that. Well, models are helpful. And Paul's model here, I think, is worthy to be emulated. The content helps us think about depth and direction. Depth and direction in our prayers for one another. So that's Paul's content. What about the purpose? What's the end? What's the goal for Paul's prayers for the Thessalonians? Look at verse 12. We pray the way we pray, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. The purpose of Paul's prayer is the glory of Christ. The purpose of his prayers for them is that Jesus would be honored. The idea of glory here is it's, it's the honor of Christ. It's, it's Christ being held in high esteem. And there's a lot to be said about this notion of glory, but for time's sake here, let's think about this. There are two things that Paul says here. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and then he says, and you in him. What do you mean by that, Paul? (laughs) Well, the first one is clear. Jesus would be glorified. That Jesus would be glorified. If you look up at verse 10 of chapter 1, verse 10, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints. There's coming a day when Jesus will come. That's really what verses 5 to 10 are about. When Jesus will come and He will be glorified. Every knee will bow and declare Him to be Lord of lords. Philippians 2. He will be held in high esteem. He will be honored when He returns. But there's a way, as always in in eschatology, that that breaks in on our present reality. Jesus will be glorified when He comes, but He is to be glorified now in your lives, in our lives. So we pray, God, glorify Yourself in this brother or sister. What about that second little phrase there? And you and him. Well, I think that what Paul is talking about here 
is similar to what he mentions in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So when Christ, who is, your, is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will be revealed with Him in glory. We are, according to 2 Corinthians 3, all being transformed from one degree of what? Glory to another. The end game of our lives is glorification. This is what it's about. This is why we're still on the earth, because God is still sanctifying us. We still need to be made worthy of God's kingdom. We still have a lot of work to do. We still need to live, uh, live lives that reflect the adoption that we've received in Christ. Right? We've got a long ways to go, each one of us. But one day, our fight against sin will cease. Jesus will be ultimately glorified through our lives, and we also, with Him, will be glorified. It's hard to fathom that one day we won't have to fight sin any longer. (laughs) But it'll be sweet. And I'll tell you this, the harder you fight sin now, I think the more you'll enjoy the rest later. Right? Fighting sin is hard work. We all know that. We need to consider our brothers and sisters fight for sin as well and pray for them. And this is why we're, we're called to pray for one another, I think, in large part. And we pray that God would continue His work in them, advance His work in them, ultimately for His glory. Right? It's a good model to adopt. So I commend it to you, brothers and sisters, to adopt it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency. We confess our insufficiency and pray, Father, that you would help us by your grace to implement this wonderful model of praying for one another that we see here outlined by Paul. Thank you for his faithfulness. But above all, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us and that while we fall so short of the high calling that you've called us to, you continue, Lord, to bear with us, to be gracious to us, to empower our feeble efforts for your glory and the good of others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.